0: So, Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, said, Not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And to all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of many uh, of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles, I went to Arabia, later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, what I'm writing is no lie. I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me.
1: Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation And, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running, and had not been running, my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing.
2: So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abram and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. It is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God. Absolutely not, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, so in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ." There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise.
3: So if you're still scratching your head after that reading, you're in good company. And um, I've come to explain these first three chapters of Galatians to you. These next two weeks are a bit of a whistle-stop tour through the letter to the Galatians. Um, And today is the first of a two-part series looking at this little book. It's a book that's often overlooked in the New Testament. And um, I thought it was time that we ought to try to understand it a bit better ourselves. But if, like me, you saw and read that reading, at various points you're thinking, hmm, not quite sure I get that. Lots of long words and um, some logic that um, is not immediately obvious, but I've come to explain it. So strap yourselves in for the next 25-30 minutes. We're going to be going at a fair pace. But I want to um, introduce this little series under the title, looking at Al." distraction can lead to destruction. Uh, my wife will tell you that uh, when we go out uh, on a walk together, which we often do, I'm very easily distracted. Um, I can't walk past a group of lads, or girls for that matter, playing football um, without looking around and following the play until we've gone past them completely. And many's the time I've walked into a, a lamppost or a, a tree or tripped over a dog lead, or flattened a small child, or something like that, because I've been distracted. It can get worse than that. We have friends in this church uh, who have a work colleague who, on her way to do the school run in a brand-new, top-of-the-range Mercedes 4x4, wrote it off. And this is a school run. Wrote the thing off. And when she was asked what happened, she said, I was distracted. Less said about that, the better, but distraction can lead to destruction. And it's the title I've given this little two-part series, because if you were with us for the first ten verses, you probably probably understood what was going on for the first ten verses or so you understood that Paul was writing to these churches in Galatia uh, because he was very worried about them. Perhaps if we could just have the map, which I think is, oh, excellent. Oh, it hasn't come out quite as big as I was hoping. Um, I'll just come over and explain a bit about the map. So um, this little uh, dot here is Hierosalima, Jerusalem, in Greek. And uh, that 's Judea, down there, so that's that this is the Roman world, if you like, so this big bit here in the middle in a light brown is Turkey. Uh, I have a good Turkish friend, and we go out to a lovely Turkish restaurant in London uh, about once a year and uh, I thoroughly recommend it it 's a great place. We went on holiday to Turkey. I might have mentioned this before. Um, over on this west coast here. I don't recommend it, it's extremely hot. And um, Galatia is this middle Roman province here. Uh, When you look at various maps of the New Testament world, the Roman world during New Testament times, sometimes they're a bit vague about where Galatia is, but basically it's in the middle of Turkey. We once had the privilege of flying across Turkey from one end to the other on our way to the Middle East As you go further east, it gets more and more mountainous and more and more uninhabited. But this middle bit here is reasonably inhabited. Again, it's not a country like ours. It's dry and hot and very cold in the winter and so on, but it's fairly mountainous. But there are cities in this middle bit here. And Paul, in his first missionary journey, took off from down here, from Caesarea, which is about here, and went up. Around here. Um, now, Paul himself, I hadn't really realized this until yesterday, was Turkish. He came from a city called Tarsus, which is in Cilicia here, but he's actually Turkish. So, if you, if you have any Turkish friends, there's your introduction. Have you ever read Paul the Apostle? Did you know he was Turkish? And uh, so that's just an explanation. And these churches in Galatia, the the scholars are not really very sure about whether it's North Galatia or South Galatia. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. The The big city in the middle is Antioch. And there would have been a church in Antioch and there's another in Pisidia, which is further south. And these various churches in Galatia had had a visit, but we'll come to that in a moment. And what does all this have to do with Galatians anyway, being distracted and so on? Well, this letter uh, is one of a number where Paul, it's normally Paul, but sometimes it's, it's the other um, New Testament leaders, where they have to explain the gospel, which is either under attack or in danger of being replaced by something else. Now, as a backdrop in the New Testament, if you read the New Testament for any length of time, you start to realize, uh, particularly towards the second half of the New Testament, that there's this conflict between the New Testament teachers, the apostles, and false teachers. And it comes up again and again and again in different New Testament letters. And these teachers have followed the New Testament teachers, These false teachers have come in and they've followed them and they've brought their false teaching with them and they're starting to upset these very early, small Christian gatherings with their various distracting messages. And this conflict can be very strong. I don't know whether you noticed, but in um, chapter 1, Paul says twice that if even an angel from heaven should come and preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be eternally condemned. And then he says it again for good measure. So um, there's, this, there's this conflict going on all the time. But in order to explain some of this, I need to take you back to first century, uh, the first century church. And we're going to be looking briefly at the Acts of the Apostles. I'm not sure I really understood what was happening in the Acts of the Apostles for a long, long time until somebody started to teach it to me and I suddenly realised what was happening was not immediately obvious from what you read from line to line to line. There was a massive seismic kind of cultural earthquake happening in the first century because of the Christian gospel. And that earthquake was about this huge social and ethnic division between Jews and non-Jews, Jews Jews and Gentiles, between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And unless you understand that, you're not really going to understand this letter to the churches in Galatia. Let me just try and explain it briefly to you. So in the early chapters of Acts. you find the New Testament teachers, the preachers, they're going off as they take the message of this early Christian gospel, they go off to the synagogues. That's where people went to meet uh, to understand the Old Testament and what God was doing through his people Israel. They went to the synagogues and they began to preach this new message about Jesus, what he had come to do, how he'd lived his life, how he died on the cross and then been raised again on the third day. They went to the synagogues, and you can see that in various parts of the New Testament. I won't, I won't go to that now. But then things started to happen. So for example, let's go to chapter 10 of Acts. You don't have to follow this. It's, um, it's entirely up to you whether you follow this or not. But in Acts chapter 10, something different started to happen. Peter got a message from a Roman centurion called Cornelius. Um, He was quite a senior officer um, in one of the regiments that was uh, in Palestine at that time at Caesarea. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great, and it was um, a great Roman city which he had built in his lifetime. Uh, And there was um, uh, a regiment stationed there, the, the Italian Regiment, And this man, Cornelius, was a centurion, quite a senior officer in that regiment. And he was a God-fearing man. He used to go to the synagogue and he used to soak up what was being said in the synagogue. But he was a Gentile. And he'd heard about Peter and he'd heard something about this new message. So he sent a message to Peter saying, come and explain this new message to me and my friends, will you? And um, we won't go into all the detail, but um, Peter ends up, going to speak to Cornelius and his family and his friends in his house. But before he got there, God gave him a vision. And the vision was essentially telling him that the Gospel is not only for Jewish people. Now up until that point, up until Acts chapter 10, it's very clear that the Gospel is being preached to Jewish people alone. And then in chapter 10 you have this change of gear and then you start to see from chapter 10 onwards that the Gentiles are now being the targets of evangelism in the Acts of the Apostles and they are coming into the churches in their thousands. Now you'd think, oh, that'd be great, (laughs) but it wasn't great because as I, as I say, I can't uh, stress to you enough this huge social and ethnic and religious divide between pagan Gentiles and strict living, law-abiding Jews. Uh, Jewish communities were very tight-knit. If you were a, a, a little Jewish boy, you went to a Jewish school. You had very, very few Jewish uh, friend, uh, uh, Gentile friends and you would very, very rarely visit their homes. Their parents, your parents wouldn't let you go to a Gentile home. And when Peter comes to Cornelius' house, he says, you know that our law forbids me coming into your house and sharing food and drink with you. Such was the huge divide between Jews and Gentiles at that time. It's not something we see today, but in those days, it was very powerful. And then uh, as we go on into Acts and so on, what you tend to find is that more and more Gentiles being converted because Paul and Barnabas are set aside to preach to the Gentiles and Gentiles are being converted and they're coming into the church and now these Jews and these Gentiles who formerly would not even walk on the same pavement, they're sitting there together in somebody's home or a, a hall like this and you'd have the Gentiles on one side and you'd have the Jews on the other and they wouldn't sit next to each other. So that's the context of what's happening here. And also what was happening was that the the Jewish leaders of the synagogues were starting to feel very uncomfortable about some of their folks leaving the synagogue and starting to associate with Gentile people in churches. They are also very uncomfortable uh, concerning this message about Jesus having died on the cross and come back to life on the third day and so on, and they were losing people out of the synagogues. So they started to persecute the early Christians, particularly the Jewish ones. Now that's the context. So our first point is the false teachers and their gospel, and this is what Paul is very um, clearly trying to um, trying to address here. So, um, following the um, the uh, the Council of Jerusalem in Acts fifteen, which is worth a read. If you if you want to have a read of that later, you can. We don't have time to uh, to stop and look at that today. Um, following the Council of Jerusalem. The leaders of the church at Jerusalem finally accepted that Gentiles were were part of God's plan. Paul went to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 and explained that if you read the Old Testament carefully, even right back in Genesis chapter 12, which is referred to here, God's plan was always that he was going to extend his kingdom to include all nations. It was never going to be just... Jewish people. It was always going to be, and all nations, including the Gentiles. And they came to realise that, and they accepted that from now on, Gentiles would be accepted in the Christian churches, the Christian gatherings, fully accepted as partners, as equals with Jews. So they're now having to have a new vision of what the church would look like, not just Jewish people, but Gentiles as well, and they're starting to encourage the Gentiles over there to come and sit with the Jews over here. They're starting to to go to each other's homes and eat together. They're starting to let their children play together. But this is seismic. This is different. This is not how it used to be. And there's a reaction to this in some of the leaders in Jerusalem. And what Paul is saying in in chapters 1 to 3 here is that these leaders are coming from Jerusalem, making that journey up from Hierosalima up to uh, Galatia, to the province, the Roman province of Galatia, coming into the churches and saying, oh, Paul's gospel's fine as far as it goes. Yes, you must have faith in Christ, but actually it's going to make us feel much more comfortable if you accept Jewish customs, including circumcision. And these Gentile folk are now starting to be confused by this because Paul has said, all you need is faith. All you need to understand is that Christ died on the cross, rose again from the third day, and if you believe in that, that God promises you salvation. And then these Jewish folk coming in, These leaders coming in saying, well, it's not quite as simple as that. You need to follow the Jewish customs. Um, uh, You have to remember the the Jewish festivals and so on. And your, your adult males need to be circumcised. And they were feeling confused by this. And that's the reason why Paul writes this letter. So, these Jewish folk had come up to Galatia to correct what they saw as license in the Christian churches and their message was that Gentile believers need to, um, uh, need to accommodate Jewish sensibilities and, in effect, become Jews, taking on board some Jewish customs and practices and sealing this with circumcision. Yes, faith in Christ is really important, but these things are important as well and need to be taken on board so that even the Apostle Peter was taken in. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, that's that city in the middle of Galatia, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, that's the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles a big seismic change, chapter 10, he'd had this, this, uh, this vision from God and now he was prepared to sit down at the same table as Gentiles. But now, here in Antioch, he'd stop that he, and Peter was not eating with Gentiles anymore. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, this Jewish group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by the hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Paul's right-hand man. So, back to chapter 1 for a moment. Paul has been at pains already to distance himself from the church at Jerusalem. This is where the early Christian uh, leaders uh, leaders were. The, the, early, uh, the first church was formed there, the early, the, the early Christian teachers had ministered there, it was Jewish, many believers were uneasy that salvation was being offered to pagan Gentile dogs. And these false teachers claimed to have the authority of the Jerusalem church and its leaders. Let's come on to chapter 2 unity and separation. So already, Peter was struggling, wasn't he? He'd come up to visit these churches in Antioch and he had started, originally, back from chapter 10 onwards, to associate with Gentile believers. Indeed, he'd seen for himself that the Holy Spirit had come on these early believers and was now accepting them as full believers in Christ. As partners in the gospel, but now in Antioch he was withdrawing himself again, and Paul had to stand up to him face to face in a very public way. Was uh, was Paul just being awkward at this point in calling Peter out, as it were? Was he was he just being awkward? Was he? Because you might get the impression uh, if you read these first three chapters of, of um, Galatians that. Paul is very insistent that he's right. (laughs) Sometimes we look at people like that who always think they're right, and we think they're no-alls. But it's not like that. Let me try and explain it this way. Uh, There's gonna be a big football transfer this week of uh, a young man called Harry Maguire. Uh, His very name, it seems to me, gives him away as a centre-half. My dad always said that centre-halves did two things. They headed the ball and they kicked the centre forward. Uh, <laughs> Harry Maguire is going to be transferred from Leicester City to Manchester United. He's a centre half. £80 million pounds is, going to be, is going to be exchanged for a centre half who heads the ball and kicks the centre forward. But never mind, Harry Maguire is going to be a Manchester United player. Now, wouldn't it be funny if in six months' time, say around, well, maybe even Christmas time, he got a call from one of his mates at Leicester City uh, who said to him, look, uh, Harry, we need you to come and play with us uh, for three or four games because we're in trouble. Leicester City generally have this problem around Christmas time. Asked my wife, she's a Leicester City supporter. And, and Harry said, yeah, all right, then. I'll come back and play you for, three or f- for, for you for three or four games and we'll soon see you out of trouble. He's quite a decent centre-half, even if he is a centre-half. And uh, that would be a bit odd, wouldn't he? You'd be saying to him, oh, hold on, Harry, you can't just go back and play for Leicester. You're now under contract to Manchester United. You're under a new regime. They're paying your vast wages. You can't just go back and play for Leicester. Well, that's what was happening with Peter. He was going back and playing for Leicester. He didn't realise, but in in doing this, in saying, no, no, um, you have to be Jewish to be a Christian. What he was saying was, and Paul explains this, no, I'm going to go back under the law. It's much safer there. I know where I am there. And all my mates are there. All my Jewish mates are there. We're there together. It's much more comfortable for me there. I want to be back under the law. And, uh, of course, Paul calls him out. And he says, well, if you want to go back and live under the law, Peter, you have to recognize that you have to keep the law. You have to keep every little jot and tittle in the law. And you can't, can you? Because the law was never intended to give you life and salvation. So... Peter, going back to Jewish practices, was placing himself under the law's requirements. Here's a question for you. We've been here four years and we don't have many trappings in this church, as you can see. We don't have an altar and we don't keep certain festivals. Let me ask you a question. Why don't we keep um, the the Feast of Tabernacles? Why don't we respect Passover anymore? Why don't we celebrate the Day of Atonement? Because Christ has fulfilled them all. And they're obsolete. They're like our old coffee machine. We're just going to chuck it out. We don't need it anymore. They're obsolete. They pointed to Christ. And Christ has now fulfilled them. So why would we go back to those feasts and festivals? We don't want to do that, do we? Because Christ has fulfilled it all, and we worship Christ, who has made an end, if you like, of many of the things in the Old Testament. He's completely fulfilled the whole lot. So we don't have to go back and keep all those old festivals anymore. And on what is Christian unity founded? Paul is very clear. It's the gospel of justification by faith alone. So anyone who says, yes, Faith in Jesus is great but you also need to attend confession, or you need to buy indulgences, or you need to have the last rites said, or you need to have a certain spiritual experience, or you need to go to the tube station and stand there with your pamphlets in order to be saved. They're wrong. We can confidently say with Paul, no, you're wrong if you think that. If you think that you have to do that to be saved, you're wrong. OK. Thirdly, what is the gospel? Now I've given this some thought. and tried to put it in kind of 20th, 21st century terms. It's a very useful question to ask any Christian actually, what is the gospel? Try and explain it in a sentence. It's, it's quite a challenge, actually. The gospel is essentially three things. The gospel. If you, if you boil it all down, if you're trying to try and put it in one sentence, the Gospel is firstly um, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the history, it's what happened, it's what he actually did in first-century Palestine um, during his life, death and resurrection. Those events encompass the history of the Gospel. But then secondly, It's an interpretation of those events. It's not the events in themselves. It's the interpretation that in those events, God was acting to achieve salvation for his people. I'm not putting this in one sentence, am I? But secondly, it's the interpretation of those events as God acting in salvation. In other words, this is history that means something very significant. Now, I went to Lidl last week and I bought a pot of Greek-style honey with yoghurt. It's history. It's not particularly significant for you or me, but it's history. It happened. There's a German word, though, for this significant history, which means something. It's called Geschichte. And in German, you can say that this is something, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, this is something that's world-changing. It's Geschichte. And thirdly, it's, it's, it's the history, it's the interpretation of that history as God achieving salvation for his people. But then thirdly, it's the promise that if you believe in those things... In the history, in the interpretation, God will save you. So that when you come to die, you'll be there on the slab, but you'll be with Christ in heaven. Now that, I'm not sure I can put it in one sentence actually, that's the gospel in its kernel and its boiled down form. It's the history, it's the interpretation, it's the promise that God will save you. And in Galatians, the issue at stake is how the gospel is individually appropriated and then lived out. There were those coming from Jerusalem who wanted to add circumcision and the other Jewish festivals to the gospel as necessary for salvation. Paul explained that if this practice was accepted, it was a denial of the gospel. You were putting yourself back under a new regime. You were doing a Harry Maguire You were going back to that regime of law, which had never been intended to save in the first place. And this is Paul's great argument. Let me explain it to you. If you want to live under law, well understand this first. That God saved Abraham 430 years before the law ever came in. God saved Abraham by faith through his faith, because of his faith. Nothing to do with law or obedience, legal obedience anyway. God saved Abraham because of his faith. Chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited, it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a direct quotation from Genesis. The law came 430 years later and was never intended to overturn the covenant of promise. Now remember, Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And he lists the different ways in which he's going to bless Abraham. One of which, by the way, was that from his seed would come All nations, all nations would be blessed through Abraham. Not just the one nation, but all nations. And God made this promise to Abraham. Now the year was, uh, the the law was another 430 years in coming. And God said to Abraham, you believe this promise and you will be saved. And Abraham believed God and set out from his home in Ur of the Chaldees for the promised land. He was saved by faith. The law's purpose was to regulate the life of God's people until Messiah came. Verse 19. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed, capital S, to whom the promise referred had come. So the whole purpose of the law was to make us feel... Our sinfulness, because we can't keep the law. The Ten Commandments were there to regulate the life of God's people, but also to help us recognize that we're sinners. We cannot please God. And God's salvation had always been promised. We're going to explore this a little bit further next week. And all that is needful is faith. Look at verses... uh, Twenty-four and twenty-five. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. So, last few minutes. Our next slide. Thank you. Several things we can learn from all this. First is we can't do deals with God. I'm in a real mess, God. If you get me out of this, I promise I will do X or I will live for you or I will give money. You can't do deals with God. What God does is he says, I will promise to save you if you believe the gospel. You can't. Um, Do a deal with God so that if you do something, he will deliver on his promise. It doesn't work like that. The second thing we learn is that the great search for God is unnecessary. God has revealed himself in Christ, in the Gospel. We don't need to go searching for God. You sometimes read about this, don't you, the great search for God. People don't search for God, they're running away from God as fast as they possibly can, if they're really honest. And we can't search for God and find him. It's unnecessary because God has revealed it, revealed himself in the Gospel. Then, God does not save on the basis of human merit. Now, that, you'd think that might be fairly obvious from what we've been learning in Galatians. But how many people do you meet who think that when they meet God, they're going to be good enough and that somehow they balance out the good that they've done in life with the bad things that they've also done, that the good will outweigh the bad and somehow God will see that and he'll let them into his heaven. That's naturally, I think, how we think about religion That If we deliver somehow in obedience terms, God will look at that and be pleased with us and save us. That's not how it works. Religion, as such, is exactly that. It's trying to earn your way into God's good books. It doesn't work like that. What God says is, no, you believe the gospel, what I've done for you, and then I promise to save you. Here's another thing, and if we insist on making our own way to God, we say that the death of Christ was unnecessary and that the gospel is false. So if you want to live under law, fine, two problems with that. Firstly, you can't, (laughs) you can't keep the law, and secondly, it was never intended to save you anyway, so why are you going to go and live under the law? but if you do that, you're saying, well, no, God sending Christ was completely unnecessary because I can earn my way to God. In fact, you're giving God the raspberry by, by saying to him, no, no, I don't need Christ. I don't need the gospel. I don't need the resurrection because I can do it. So if we insist on making our own way to God, we say that the death of Christ was unnecessary and that the gospel is false. And Christian teachers who divert us away from the cross towards other areas of obedience or experience must be wrong. This is the trap that the cults always fall into. They always say, yes, we understand that the death of Christ uh, was for us and it deals with our sin, but then you've got to go and do this. That's the trap they all fall into. It's a trap that Peter fell into, a trap that Barnabas fell into, those leaders in Jerusalem. So as a, a good body of people who continually fall into this trap, the gospel as such is not quite enough you have to add to it. But here's a great thing as well. If the gospel is true, and we believe it to be. We can preach the gospel freely to anybody, anybody, from the smallest child to the oldest person, people with learning disabilities, people with mental health problems, even billionaires, because it meets the needs of everybody. Because A, we're all sinners, so we're all equal in that sense, and B, If you can earn your way to God, then certain people are excluded because they can't. Thief on the cross, he didn't have any time to earn his way into God's good books, did he? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All he had was faith and God accepted him. God has done it all. So, at the end of Galatians chapters 1 to 3, Have you believed the gospel or are you still trying to earn your way to God? That's the question for you today. I would urge you, forget what you've done or are trying to do and go to the cross and see there that God has dealt with your sin. Believe that and God will credit that to you as righteousness and he promises to save you.